Pod This, the official podcast of Let's Fix This. My name is Andy Moore. I'm your host. I'm joined this week, as always, by Scott Nelson. Hello, Scott. Hey, guys. How are you? I'm delightful. How are you? I'm also well. Thank you. I'm well, glad. Thanks for asking. Yeah. We're also joined this week by a special guest, Marty Michelson. Hi, Marty. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Marty, I've known you for almost 20 years. Uh, I met you as back when I was in college, and I know that you are doing a number of things in the community right now. Would you tell us a little bit about what some of those things are? Yeah, I uh, am active in several roles. I don't speak on behalf of those roles necessarily today, but I'm working with a Leadership Academy down in the downtown area. I teach at Southern Nazarene University. I have a role in a church that's an upstart church in the Midtown area, um, and uh, very active in trying to help young people in various capacities think about uh, what it means for them to be agents of change and work towards the flourishing of communities and uh, dynamic education that is life-fulfilling and uh, good for all. I want to acknowledge to our listeners that Marty is the best prepared one of the three today. He brought notes and frantically scrambled down things before we got started, which I neglected to do. He's definitely the most prepared. I would bet he's also the smartest. That's, that's definitely true. Which helps. Right. That does true. So as we kind of jump off uh, a quick update on where things are in state politics, since we last recorded, Governor Fallon has put out word that she will be calling back the legislature for the second special session beginning next Monday, December 18th. That's extraordinary. It's extra extraordinary, Scott. Even more than that, she hasn't yet actually issued the executive order. Yeah, I think we're all kind of waiting with bated breath to see what's what's going to be the scope of this. So we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. Do you think that she will issue the order today, tomorrow? I mean, if they're going to come back Monday, they have to know what they're supposed to be coming back to talk about. If passed as prologue, I think she's going to do it tomorrow at about 4.30. But as we also know, I'm typically wrong about these things. So. That's true. No tote bag for you. Yeah, no tote uh, bag for me. So that's uh, that's where we're at right now. We're all kind of waiting. Yeah. The other kind of going on that's related to that, or potentially related to that this week, is they've started having hearings. The Special Investigative Committee for the House, chaired by Representative Cockroft, has uh, started having hearings this week looking at potential, certainly mismanagement and potential malfeasance at the Department of Health. We're not going to get into kind of what all has gone down today. So far, it's been just a lot of, I think, kind of fact-finding um, trying to trying to determine what happened when and who knew about it. Yeah, I haven't I haven't looked at anything today. The first day they had the hearings when uh, Preston Dorflinger and uh, some of those spoke or testified or whatever it was. I found it moderately interesting. Everyone was like, "Well, you know, something went wrong. We don't really know what happened." And it strikes me that they were asking people who weren't there. Yeah. So of course they don't know. Uh, I found uh, Mr. Dorflinger's testimony particularly fun to read because it was just like a lot of, yeah, yeah, I don't know. No, yeah, I answered that already. No, answer hasn't changed. Yep, I'm, yeah, I'm sure. No, I, it, was, I wasn't there. It felt a little tedious at yeah. points. I'm sure he was, would have appreciated the time to do something else. But uh, do you, Scott, do you know, or Marty, you, if they're going to call in like Terry Klein and and Julie Cox Kane, some of the the I'll say ousted leadership from the health department? I, I mean I don't I I don't know and I haven't heard. I'm just kind of outside looking in. I don't see how you can't, but so far I haven't heard that they're going to, no. I guess we'll wait and find out. 
I'm on the tip of my seat. I can tell. <laughs> to shift gears, uh, let's talk to our guest. That's why he's here. So as we started last week, kind of a series that we wanted to do about community, particularly how it relates to politics. And, and Marty, I think you bring a unique perspective, one of certainly a religious one. As an Old Testament scholar, that's how I know you best. <clears throat> you can kind of see as the long game on how we, how we create community, how we divide or destroy community, and maybe what role politics plays in that. And that can look really different under different types of uh, political regimes or control series. So I'm actually interested just to find out what your notes say. Well, so, I've got all kinds of notes here, so we'll just see how this moves forward. And and I know that you also listened to the episode of On Being that we referenced last week that was, I guess, two weeks old now. And so kick us off. Tell us what you're, what's on your yeah, mind today. Uh, well, let me just start with this, with the notion of religion and <clears throat> politics, just to get started. Um, one of the things, and I teach this in the classroom when I'm teaching about the Hebrew Bible, Jewish studies, Old Testament for Christians, is I point out to persons that the Old Testament, Jewish scripture, has no notion of what Americans hold to be so dear, that is a separation of church and state. Separation in church and state is uh, ensconced, obviously, in American political systems. Uh, but it's not actually part of a biblical ethic or a biblical framework of understanding things. So I think I just get started by saying um, religious persons understanding biblical texts should understand that their religion should affect the way they participate in politics and what happens with it. Now, having said that, let me also jump to another sort of extreme on that. Um, one of the books I'm reading right now that I've, I've not yet finished, but it's called Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire by Kurt Anderson. And it's uh, fascinating how religion can get involved in community building and politics and certain kind of fantasy ideas that also lead people completely astray, right? So uh, two things, almost polar opposites there to get us started. Sure. I think we should pause so Scott can add that book to his Amazon wish list. I'm getting my pen out right now. <laughs> uh, well, and it strikes me that in American politics and certainly here in Oklahoma as well, I feel like things are kind of shifting so that there is one party that is aligned with evangelical Christianity and thus the other party is not. Not by their own identification, but by the maybe the, the people, the populace, kind of ascribed to each party is that, well, that's the party of God and that's the party of heathens. Do you think, do you guys feel like that's the case? Do you see that? I mean, I, I think that certainly there's, I think there's a tendency to view it that way. And it's something that um, I... Uh, I kind of bristle at a little bit because I was uh, reading an article this week that was that was talking about this very dynamic and it turns out like when you look at American Christianity and if you've got better numbers in this feel free Marty to jump in only about 17% of American Christians um, would identify as capital E evangelical right and when I say capital E I'm referring to evangelical Christianity kind of as the political block the voting block that it's become and this association with one party as kind of the party of God, um, I think really creates problems for people of all faiths, but in particular Christians, since that's what we're talking about now, because it, it creates this like, well, maybe I want to vote for a Democrat and I'm an Orthodox Catholic, but can I vote for a Democrat because you know, Christians are supposed to vote for Republicans or, you know, I'm... Uh, a Baptist in the South, but I don't identify with the Southern Baptist Convention. Or maybe I'm a Protestant who's fairly liberal on some things, but 
I have real concerns about abortion, does that mean I have to vote Republican? So I agree with you that certainly things tend to be kind of broken down on those lines, but for me that creates some real problems. Well, another problem too is that neither the Republican nor the Democratic parties are Christian. They are political parties right. that hold political positions. And, and even the two-party political system that we've come to sort of assume is the only way forward, uh, not recognizing the full participation of the platforms of the Green Party or the Libertarian Party or independents in various ways, unfortunately polarizes. I, I would agree with your general assessment that uh, the sort of Christian identity has been in at least the last two decades tied to the Republican Party. Um, that's that's probably unfair for the sort of full gamut of things that Christians believe, but that certainly seems to be the way the voting has taken place in the major American elections. Right. And it also strikes me as being an unfair to like all of my Democrat friends that are Christian that identify very closely with their faith, and, and then they feel kind of, of course. left out. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Well, because I think it also, you know, it kind of begs the question that, and this is alludes to what you said initially, it's, I think part of it is how strongly do you feel that politics and the political system should or shouldn't be a vehicle to advance what you see as maybe the goals, values, you know, cultural kind of mores of whatever your religion, right? Sure. Like you're a Christian and you value these things and you feel like the world should look a certain way. Is the vehicle by which you advance that voting for people or is the vehicle by which you advance that you know, what you do with your church community, if you have one, or how you talk to people about your faith. I think that that may be one way that these kind of tend to break down. Yeah, that's an excellent observation. Uh, another observation I would bring, too, is that within that spectrum, there's there's so many positions that political parties hold on anything from, you know, use of land to, uh, you know, contracts. Um, but what, what happens in political systems, characteristically with religious people, is there are a couple of issues, whatever those couple of issues are, and that becomes the issue around which Christian people have, in again, in recent elections, sort of framed all of their identity. So there's people who, in recent polls, and these people get questioned in the news and, and end up on uh, interviews, and they say, well, it doesn't matter what his or her opinion is on this because he's pro-life or pro-choice. Mm -hmm. Like, so the, you be, it, it, it's not even really then party politics. It's single issues. Issue, right. and, it's, and it's just that one issue that becomes the issue. Anything else about land use, about recycling, about, you know, contracts between governments, about anything else doesn't matter to that person. That becomes really scary in terms of how politics begins to take form. Sure, I... Some people that are that are close to me that voted for Trump in the last presidential election because of the Supreme Court nomination that he would have, and they said, "Well, I think that's important, mainly for Roe versus Wade." And I said, "But that is only one decision out of thousands that this guy would get to make. Um, do you think he's going to make those other decisions? Even even half of those, do you think he's going to make the right one?" And they said, "I don't I don't know, but and you know, certainly they also just didn't like." Hillary either. So there was kind of like, I don't want her. At least we get a Supreme Court pick out of this. And and I think maybe a lot of voters don't have the time or energy, especially now, to think through the ramifications of what elected a president or a governor or even your state rep or your school board. I mean, these all have wield a lot of power in our lives we don't think about. And we don't think about how much or what those ramifications might be. I, I, I think you're right. 
I also think, though, that it boils down to, certainly for some people, almost kind of part of their theological orientation and that they see kind of a hierarchy of, of things that may be evil or not, um, but they're not all the same. I had someone tell me one time, and, and instantly not someone who voted for President Trump, but um, on the issue of abortion, they said, you know, I really, I just really believe deeply that abortion it is it is the great sin of our time. It is the great sin of our culture, and I believe that we're going to have to answer for that. And my kind of counterpoint was, all right, without even kind of delving into that, I guess my question would be, isn't is poverty not also a great sin of our time? Is the children in America who are starving because the only meals that they get are the two meals they get five days a week from school? Is that not also a great sin of our time? As wealth, you know, inequality that we see in society, and and it's not that they don't see those things as problematic, but I think that there are certain people, for reasons that I'm not trying to discount, I just don't necessarily agree with them. There are people that look at something like abortion and say that supersedes all of the others. Mm-hmm. I don't really know why that is, but it seems to do with kind of their orientation about sin as a construct. Do you, I? I feel like it maybe it's because it feels like there is a solution to that problem and that other issues like poverty or wealth inequality or you know HIV and AIDS or you know those kinds of issues feel too big but if we could you know people might feel like if they can change this one law this one supreme court ruling that it fixes this thing and that would be okay and they just want they want a solution to a problem that feels manageable also maybe it's one that they they can think about in the abstract and it doesn't affect them personally or maybe the reverse. Maybe it's something that does affect them personally and that's why it's such a bigger issue. But, you know, people starving in another continent, they don't see and it doesn't, it doesn't feel as personal to them. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think that's a great point and it kind of all affects you want to say, okay, all right, fine. So Neil Gorsuch is on the court, say they, there's another appointment and they overturn Roe v. Wade. Like, is the, is the world now the place that it should be? Right? Like, are we done? Right. right like, right. so what's going to, like, what's, what's next? What's going to be the next, um, nicely done West Wing reference? Um, <laughs> you know, what's, what's going to be kind of the next thing that we're going to tackle with this zeal? So as we look at this intersection of faith and politics and single issues and complex issues, how do we respond to create a community not just of like-minded people? Maybe that's the big question. Right. Yeah. You know, I there has to be, there is room in America for religious pluralism and obviously non-religious perspectives as well. So we have to start with that and recognize that America recognizes and allows for that. So, and I can only speak for sort of my faith positions and how that shapes my sense of identity. But with that one issue, um, and obviously the goal and conversation today about community, it, it seems to me, as I've already I said, when certain religious persons identify with a single issue, they're missing the larger call of what at least Jewish and Christian religion call toward. Jewish and Christian religion in obviously care for one another and uh, you shall not murder and commit adultery, steal, lie, envy, you know, you get the commandments in there. But it really is the transformation of a a different kind of social order. So um, Christians and Jews understand that where they're placed and where they live, they should be working for the benefit, 
the well-being of the community where they're placed. And part of, I think, a problem for the larger political dynamic in America right now is that people feel like they need to go to the ballot box to affect something that's taking place in Washington, D.C., or with the state government, both of which matter. But there are other ways that those persons should be involved in their actual local community. They should be working with their local school in their neighborhood. They should be working with the kinds of crime in their local neighborhood. They should be working with efforts to get to know their neighbors that shape their parks, that shape the pedestrian traffic and bike traffic in their neighborhood. Because I think when people begin to understand and see themselves uh, wholly built within the neighborhoods where they live, and they begin to transform neighborhoods into communities of tolerance, care, generosity, respect, then that can begin to transfer out to other issues. So for me, um, I wish people of religious faith didn't get locked on to one particular issue that might take place with the Supreme Court or in federal government. And when I say I don't want them getting involved with that, it's not, I don't think we should abandon Christian concerns there. But I, I think the call in biblical text, at least, is to really work where we're planted within our communities and transform those communities to be agents of flourishing, reciprocity, generosity, care, uh, and then let that transfer out. Mm -hmm. I like that. I totally agree, incidentally. I think, and I think that you're 100% right. It strikes me, um, and this is uh, more to play devil's advocate, really, than kind of a, a counterpoint, but how would you respond to someone, because I was sitting here listening to you, and I was just imagining, like, I can hear, like I can hear someone saying, well, that's just a bunch of liberal stuff you're talking about, right? Talking about, you know, your local schools and parks and pedestrians. I don't know why I slip into the accent. There's lots of <laughs> wonderful conservative people who don't talk like that. So I'm, I'm not trying to step, I'm not trying to stereotype. Um, but I mean, what you're describing to me, certainly um, it's in the context of, of faith, but sounds a lot like things like community organizing, right? Like things that I have not rightly or wrongly, I think come to be associated with kind of a more progressive stance. How do you approach someone and talk to someone who's kind of from a, a conservative perspective that this is what the call of Christians, Jews, or people of other faiths is to, is to do? How do you have that conversation? Uh, so for me, I go back to biblical text. I mean, if I'm going to talk to a, a person who's going to use the same biblical text, the same story of Jewish and Christian origin to shape their identity, then we we should be able to go back to those texts together. I don't know that that's where we want to go with our conversation today. We can. Sure. We'll see how that moves forward. Um, but but with, with someone like that, I, I think I would try, and again, I can only speak for myself. I would say to someone who finds themselves in a polarizing one-issue vote, uh, and so we'll go with the one of abortion, Roe v. Wade kinds of thing. I'd say, I respect the fact that you care deeply about this matter of abortion. However, we also need to be concerned with the women, the mothers, how people are getting pregnant, why they're getting pregnant, what shapes their identity in life that leads people towards these choices. Um, and so uh, it's clearly not the case that people that are choosing abortion are one demographic, right? There's a myriad number of reasons why people sure. do so. Uh, but there also are persons for whom um, abortion is problematically... Um, very much part of their economic identity, 
maybe dropouts from school, maybe have witnessed abusive relationships and end up in an abusive relationship and end up pregnant because they don't have resources to honestly have either good sex education or access to uh, the kinds of resources that would prevent them from getting pregnant. And so what I would say to the person who cares about abortion, I'd say, okay, you care about abortion, you want Supreme Court legal issues, but how does this take place in your community? How, do, how can we get to know persons that are making the choice for abortion? What informs their decision for abortion? How can we talk to them about who they are living and why they're living and the choices that they're making and the relationships they live? And that has a lot more to do with how people live within their social, economic, relational structures of life. Even apartment complexes are going to sure. shape how that frames for them. Marty, I totally agree just with all of that. But Scott, when you were speaking earlier, it made me think about that we so often have backyard barbecues. You invite your friends and family over, they come over, and that's great fun. But often it's behind your house, inside the fence, hidden from view, because we don't want those people to come over. But, I mean, if you live near them, chances are they're probably okay people. I mean, what if we moved our grill to the front porch? And what if we invited our neighbors over? Like, just, you know, the six houses closest to you say, hey, we're having a cookout on Saturday, won't you come over? Bring something, don't, that's fine, um, and just get to know them without an agenda at all, right? Like just have a conversation and find out about them. And I think uh, for me growing up um, in the Christian faith, I think one of the things that struck me most vividly, certainly once I was in college, was the the idea of taking a seeking approach to life, to faith, to relationships, instead of a found approach and now I'm going to tell everyone else about it. And so it required this. This is also why I switched from theology to psychology for my major, um, because I wanted to ask more questions and I didn't feel like I was equipped to stand in front of people and tell them what they should believe. I didn't, I'm not the moral authority for my grandmother. Um, she is for me. I think I should ask questions of her instead of kind of lead her down that path. Where do you, where do you guys see that seeking play into building communities, and maybe how does that connect with how we can do better in politics? Are you uh, are you familiar with a guy named Peter Rollins? Is he related to Henry Rollins? I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> so Peter Rollins, he's, uh, he's an Irish guy from Belfast who's, um, I, I don't want to say what he is because I don't want to like put a label on him that he wouldn't be comfortable with. I think he would say he's somewhere between, he's either a philosopher who kind of works in theology or he's a theologian who kind of works in philosophy somewhere in, the, in there. Um, he's written some absolutely just fascinating stuff that I, I identify with a lot. Um, and I was just thinking when you were talking about a project that he did with a, a faith community he had in Belvast, the evangelism project. So they would get this church, um, you know, a community of people that identified as Christians um, that was together, but they would go to, they would go to a, a Muslim community and they would go to to a Jewish community they would go to you know all these other faith communities and and say the evangelism project was like hey we're here we want to meet you we want to get to know you and then we would like you to evangelize us like uh. like that was the evangelism project for them was <sighs> we would like you to evangelize us in your faith tradition he said for them it was it was that's when you stop seeking that's kind of what because for them it did a couple of things one brought them into community with people that they weren't before and kind of helped them 
you know, just learn things and see things and understand things or, or ask questions or, you know, from, from people kind of, of another, uh, another tribe, but also the process of kind of being evangelized by someone else would almost help them address questions that they had about their own faith. Right. You know what I mean? Like help them kind of like, Oh, now that I see this, this contrast, that helps me better understand. Sure. It makes things more vivid. My own kind of tradition. Sure. Um, but, and I think that that translates some to politics. I think that, you know, one of the things that we really suffer from, I know we're suffering from it in America right now, and I don't know if it's always been the case, but I think certainly it is now, is that, you know, I had lunch with some friends today, and one of the things that was said was, as uh, another uh, another couple and me, and the husband said, well, you said we're not allowed to, I know, he was telling his wife, he said, you said we're not allowed to talk about politics. Why aren't we allowed to talk about politics? And I think that that's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, like, we're not allowed to have this conversation. We're not allowed to have this contrast because it's too defensive or it's too painful. Or having that conversation may cause one of us to question something right. that we really hold dear and that maybe we depend on in ways we don't totally appreciate. We like being comfortable with with what we know and how it is. That When I was in college, uh, we had a... Just having Marty here makes me so nostalgic for <laughs> college. But I had a class in the psychology of religion. And what we did was we were required to visit other churches. Of um, You had to go to at least like three other religions. And then depending on your own faith background, um, most everyone there was Nazarene or some kind of evangelical Christian. And so you had to go, if you grew up in a and a high church, like Episcopalian or Catholic, then you had to go to a low church, and even to a low church, like Nazarenes, you had to go to a Catholic or Episcopalian or a high church. And uh, and then we had to write papers over each of those and, and discuss it. And for each one, we had to identify, like, kind of compare their view of God, their view of relationships, heaven, hell, you know, kind of all those core tenets, what are their scriptural texts. And then, I don't know, 10 years later, uh, I was attending a church and our pastor had us do the same thing in like a Sunday school class. We, again, went through different faith traditions, um, different religions, and paired God and heaven and hell and key texts and that kind of thing. Uh, and then at the end of each one, they had us identify truth in this. So where did we find truth in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Taoism, in you know, some of the uh, Christian cult offshoots and all those things. And that there was a wide range of adults in there from, you know, me, I was just out of college to, you know, people that were my parents' age. And so we had really robust, rich conversations because people had to struggle, especially when we got to Islam, right? Like that's the one that everyone's like, well, that's the most different from us. I was like, have you, have you read about Hindu? Like that's pretty different from Christianity. Um, and so to hear people like find out things that resonated with them, that's, that were truths to them, Last night I was thinking, like, I wish there was a way I could just read what someone else's Twitter feed looks like. Like, I know what mine is, and we all, to some degree, have kind of insulated um, echo chambers on social media. So I had someone that followed me and uh, had commented, and she, when I was reading her, her tweets, they were pro-Trump, 
but anti-Mitch McConnell. And I, and I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that being a subset of the political spectrum. And so I was like, I wonder what her echo chamber is like. And I would like to step inside and listen to it and kind of see what it's like to help find out what is truth to them. And, and for that same thing, Scott, to see how that might resonate and I don't know, expand my view of, of issues. Yeah, I'm going to come back to actually something that Scott said a minute ago. He said he was at lunch and a statement was made about not being able to talk about this. And then you just mentioned, Andy, this echo chamber. You want to enter this this girl's echo chamber, which I don't know. Maybe I don't want to enter that echo chamber. I'm not sure. <laughs> but give me what you, you described. Were, you were, I was like, do you want to see what her echo chamber but, is? It might have been a bot. It could have been a troll, <laughs> troll bot. But one of the things that I think is interesting, uh, so I, I happen to be working with some high school students right now. And... Um, Early in a conversation, this was a few weeks ago, about politics, uh, asked just a very generic question about what they think about politics. And quite frankly, for this particular group of young people, they were just completely turned off by it. And their perception of it was, this is the thing my parents listen to that makes them angry. And you, they just, they didn't know what the issues were, as best I could tell. Uh, they, when we talked about some of the issues, they didn't know what was going on at that time. They just knew when the news came on, their parents got mad. They were upset about it. it was I can very, identify with their parents. <laughs> well, what was very interesting to me about it was I, I tried to say to them, I said, that's really interesting. Um, and I said, I, I, I can understand that's what you're hearing and what you're see, seeing. But I don't see politics that way. And part of it is really just an, a definitional sense. Politics is about the polis. And the polis is the city. And the city is where we live our day-to-day life. So for me, politics should be about that. How do we live our day-to-day life? How do we live in ways where there's the ability for all of the members within the community, within the polis, within the city to be able to survive and thrive. Now, it's impossible that everybody can thrive in the same capacity. There's no city that has, unless we want to get into, you know, socialism, you know, perfectly right. perfectly uh, right. manifest, which, of course, hasn't happened. But, um, but, how, but how do we allow for at least everyone to have some forms of thriving, some forms of life? And for me, then, again, I think when we talk about politics, I wish we were able to say, I think for people hear politics and they think Republican Democrat. I wish when we said talked about politics, we talked about the thriving, vibrant, meaningful life that happens in cities. And and I that's not against, you know, rural areas. Sure. But it's the notion of again polis being the city. What does it mean that the polis is about shaping communities where uh, agrarian issues fit in? but where street development fits in, where education is part of our conversation, where uh, obviously assault and crime is also part of it. But how is that whole thing instead of, again, are you Republican or Democrat? Are you for or against Trump? For or against Obama? For or against these sort of single issues and single sort of personalities? Right. right. Yeah, and I, I think their polis can refer to, yeah, metropolitan cities as well as the town of Antlers or somewhere else, some small place. Um, <clears throat> a while back, we had an event in Enid where we drove from, you know, drove from here up to Enid just to host a little community gathering at the library there. And, you know, you don't get very far out of town before you notice there's a dramatic shift in what is important to these people. And so, uh, you know, we're driving between here and there, and we went up um, 81, whatever that highway is, 
And you realize, I mean, wheat, agriculture, and oil is really... Absolutely. That's the driving factors. And yeah. we see that reflected. Yeah. And I think Oklahoma is, uh, in many ways, reflective of what's happening nationwide is that we are self-selecting which communities we choose to live in. So people are continuing to move to urban areas and urban areas across the country, including here, are becoming more democratic and rural areas are, are become by nature becoming more Republican. Not that those people are necessarily becoming more entrenched, but the absence of the other color, the other side yeah. makes them uh, a starker difference. And so we start lining up on these issues for or against certain things because that's what matters to us. And it's easy for us to sit in, in our home, wherever that home might be, and say, you other guys are doing it wrong. This is what should matter. Look at all of us over here. You're on the outside. And that kind of in-group, out-group bias, of course, we all, we all want to believe that we're right. And it's, it's tough to stay in the middle and say, I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because kind of the rest of the story, the rest of the story about lunch is, as I said, being me, I was like... <laughs> I don't care. Let's talk, let's talk about it. Right. I mean, you're never one to shy away from that conversation. Well, and, and I mean, to, you know, I think part of it is that, I mean, that's the only, to me, that's the only answer, right? Having that conversation is the only way that we move forward. Right. The only way that I don't see him as other, and he doesn't see me as other is if we have that conversation and what, in my experience happens, not all the time, but often it, ha- it happens in a way in personal conversations that I think is is difficult, if not impossible, on social media, is that certainly we're not, you know, I don't think we're probably going to vote for the same person for president or governor next year or what have you, but we ended the conversation in a place of agreement. Yeah, we both want a lot of the same things, and we may disagree a little bit on how to get there, but but we're really a lot closer together than we are apart. And this is from somebody who, I mean, would certainly identify himself as being pretty conservative. Like he let off the discussion with this statement that I think a lot of people would consider pretty inflammatory. Um, and I think that that's, I think that that's our MO sometimes on both sides is like, well, even if we're going to have that conversation, we have to start by kind of like staking out our position. Like this is where, this is where I am. And don't, don't try to convince me to change. Because I'm not going to. So I'll sit here and talk about this with you, but you just need to know at the outset, I'm not going to change my mind. And it's almost like, well, I'm, I'm not here to necessarily try and change your mind. I just want to hear what you think. And I want the opportunity to tell you what I think. And maybe in the context of that conversation, both of us will learn something. Um, um, and it's a conversation that, you know, I get really frustrated because looking at the way that politics at least seems to be done, um, right now at both a local and national level, I wonder if those conversations are happening because a lot of times it seems like it's not right. Like where's, you know, I think for a long time, even when the country was very divided, um, I think that the halls of government maybe were, were actually less so, you know, because you've got people that serve together that, I mean, Antonin Scalia and Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg are best friends. Like Ruth Bader Ginsburg's best friend on the Supreme Court was Antonin Scalia, right? They oftentimes disagreed, but they had real community with each other. Um, and I wonder if community is continuing to exist in the halls of Congress or the state legislature in that 
way, or is or are or are governing bodies themselves <laughs> starting to look more like, you know, our tribes and community do? Right. You know, it's funny. Often uh, at the state house, when they're doing floor debate, they might say, "You know, my friend from Antlers or you know wherever." They'll reference each other, um, and even in conversations, they'll say, "You know, well, he's one of my best friends," or "You know, he or she's one of my friends," and. Some of the times you're like, that's true. And sometimes you're like, I know you're just saying that. And so I hate, as someone who feels like words matter, I do hate when people take the meaning and just say yeah. things because it makes it political and not community building. That's yeah. my own soapbox. So driving down the street the other day, I noticed one of my neighbor's bumper stickers, and I figured I'd bring it up today. His bumper sticker says, Jesus was a Democrat. Marty, what do you think? I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Again, I don't know what it means. Unfortunately, it's kind of polarizing, though. So it plays into this, again, Jesus is on my side, and Jesus is a Democrat. Therefore, anybody who believes in Jesus should be a Democrat, too, I guess, is what that person right. believes. I don't I don't know. Right. But I, I wonder if there are, there are other bumper stickers that say Jesus was a Republican. And maybe libertarian. There, there are. Are there? Right. I, I don't know about libertarian, but I have seen the Republican version. Well, and, and I suppose in that regard, we could we could take text from the Christian scripture and make Jesus into anything, right? Uh, socialist right. to communist and whatever. And again, that's part of the problem. You know, I, I will say this though. I mean, so let me say this: uh, Jesus in Jesus's own day, the political labels that existed in Jesus's day. From Herodians, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. People who supported the local government of sure. Herod. And then certain kinds of religious leaders, but they had political ideas that shaped their community. You know, the, the labels in Christian circles, Pharisees and Sadducees, mm-hmm. but there's Essenes. And there's several groups of people. There's Zealots. So in Jesus' own day, every one of those groups existed that I just that I just gave labels to. Zealots, Essenes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians. Jesus is never associated with a single one of them. So that's an interesting notion right there. A true independent. Yeah, maybe maybe so. But, and yet when Jesus is talking, I mean, the first words out of the... The first time Jesus speaks in a public proclamation in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So he's talking about a kingdom which has political implications. Now, that gets into all kinds of complex theology about what that means. But again, I, I do think it's interesting. You know, you, you play off the bumper sticker, Jesus was a Democrat. And what I would say is Jesus in Jesus's own day refused any of the political labels that were available and yet was talking about kingdom living, was talking about living in the polis, was talking about being a community. So that's just that's fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating. You know, I think there is. I think there's tendencies to kind of um, one of the one of the things that's been a part of my I don't know what you want to call it. I would say spiritual journey, but that just sounds so like. I think you told me last week that I was a coastal elite. I feel like saying my spiritual journey makes me sound like a coastal elite. I don't know. I grew up in a conservative, um, a traditional evangelical church. I grew up in a Presbyterian church, and that's for a long time was kind of what I would say was my kind of theological orientation. Um, one of the things that's been a part of my growth journey, whatever you want to call it for like the last 10, 12 years has been relates to this idea that you were just talking about the idea of kind of looking back and reading, you know, reading scripture and realizing how much of my own 
like like my like what my lens is, right? And realizing how much of what we how much our interpretation of a passage from the Bible, what our ideas of who Jesus is, whether Jesus is a Republican or a Democrat or an independent or this, that, or the other, like how much of that is shaped by um, what we bring to the table, right? Like that Jesus is a Republican because that's what I want him to be, right? Or he's a Democrat because that's what I want him to be. Um, And how hard it can be to kind of just try and let things you know, speak for themselves because the extension of that is I bring this lens to everything, right? When I talk about politics, like I have a lens that I wear when I talk about what I think is good policy or bad policy. When I talk, like, I think it's really hard for us. And I think this is one of the barriers that we have when we're talking about politics and community and why, you know, why things seem so divisive is I think it's really hard for us to take our glasses off um, and look at things from a different perspective let alone the perspective of the person sitting across the table from us. I mean, does that make sense? Sure, sure. Yeah, let me, I want to come back. I want to use another uh, reference from the New Testament Gospels, since that sort of obviously is something I read and, and plays into, again, from the, from, the, from the bumper sticker, you know, and, and from what Scott has shared. About Did you say it. you're a preacher? <laughs> well, I, I certainly don't mean to use the podcast as a means to preach, but you know, in the Gospels, there's this other, there's more than one scene, but there's another scene in the Gospels where people come to Jesus and they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, how many political issues come back to taxation, right? right. I mean, right now in the federal uh, government, there's an issue of a new tax code coming through, and it's going to pass, and they want to get it passed before or after Roy Moore shows up. Or excuse me, Roy Moore didn't get elected. Excuse me. So the Senator Jones, Jones. yeah, Senator Jones. You yeah. know, so that I mean, this is in the news right now, right? So uh, the, the, the Democrats are asking the Senate to wait until Senator Jones gets seated to vote on this tax code. Okay, so tax code is the issue. Well. Jesus was asked point blank a kind of question in his day that said, should we go with Republican taxation system or Democratic taxation systems? Obviously, that's not what the gospel right. actually says. But sure. it was, should we pay taxes? Should we participate in this form of taxation system? And one of the really curious things in that story a lot of people don't notice is Jesus says, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are upon it. Well, one of the curious things about that is it seems to be the case Jesus wasn't carrying around one of the coins that had the image of Herod on it. So Jesus himself had sort of opted out of that form. Like for Jesus, it seems to be the case that he's saying, I don't participate in this taxation system, but some of you do. Do any of you have coins? Because you've opted into this system. And then obviously for those that opt in, they're part of this now system and have to shape it. But there's another interesting issue where at least in that scene... Jesus wasn't party to one identity or not. So Jesus, by the end of that scene, he doesn't say you should or you should not pay taxes. He does say, render to Caesar that which bears Caesar's image and to God that which bears God's. But again, it's this curious issue that Jesus stands um, apart from in some way. Jesus wants to distance himself from some of the labels and yet, of course, Jesus is very concerned with how people spend their resources and whether or not they care for others. There's plenty of other issues in the Gospels that testify to that. A lot of people want to be involved and they want to do the right thing. Defining what that right thing is is very difficult. There's lots of gray area. And so what we at Let's Fix This try to do is not craft what's right or wrong, but we try to create opportunities for people to get involved 
in politics in a way that makes sense to them because you got to start somewhere and and that voter apathy and disengagement is a, a legitimate concern of mine especially in Oklahoma which is a pretty low turnout state it's a low registration state compared to other states that maybe have much higher turnout overall we're not political in that way and so I struggle with finding ways to help people get involved so that so that they they feel like they make a difference so they feel like their involvement matters and so that they feel like they're involved in politics without contributing to the the collapse of society in some kind of horrible way and that scripture sadly does not give me any indication of which way I should go with that alas there's no scripture that defines the direction of let's fix this well i mean we know it's not that one but the bible's big right <laughs> Yes. I mean, so I'll, I'll, throw, I'll throw my voice in there. It's there's, thick. There's no, there's no scripture that says how we should fix this. I, I can't say that there's scripture that tells every community how they should fix this, but the scripture does have perspectives on this. Uh, one of my favorite passages in the uh, Old Testament Hebrew Bible is in Zechariah 7 and 8. And of course, people don't read Old Testament texts and minor prophets very often. But the setup is uh, Zechariah shows up at a time in the political life of Israel when they were rebuilding themselves. And so they're trying to sort of figure out how we become who we're supposed to be again, or for the first time maybe, uh, <coughs> 520 BCE, for those people who want to know the date on this. Um, but he shows up, and the people are coming back after a time of having been exiled in a foreign community. And they're trying to figure out, do we rebuild the temple, and what does it look like? What kind of governance do we establish, and what does it look like? what kinds of leaders, what labels, and what forms do we have for that, and all that is part of it. But Zechariah 7, the beginning part of it, talks about how uh, the community is going to build cities and parks where people that are old with cane in their hand and people that are young can play in the parks together. And it's really a great vision of old and young being cared for in ways where urban life flourishes for them. And by the way, that stands then in juxtaposition to the critique of Old Testament prophets that are uh, despise and, and demonstrate that God is very upset with the case when widows and orphans are made to be widows and orphans and not cared for. So the inverse of a widow and an orphan are children that play in parks and old people that can hang out there. As part of that larger vision, at the end of Zechariah chapter 8, it announces that the people, when they fully become the people that God wants them to be, uh, nations, in the plural, will take note of it. And it says, uh, 10 men from nations of every language will lay hold of a Jew, and I like to say believer there, but will lay hold of a believer and say, let us go with you, for we have seen that God is with you. So the curious thing is, the vision is, when you build cities where aged and young can hang out and they can flourish. They're not afraid of getting molested or raped or assaulted or mugged. They're not afraid of being out at night walking. They can be out playing ball in the streets and people can develop. Then when you develop the life in that way, then people will go, wow, you guys must live in a way that demonstrates the way God wants the world to be. And we should take note of that. So there is a vision in scripture that says there should be a flourishing, vibrant, uh, meaningful, even playful life for all members of the community. And when we live into what that is, then other persons will say, wow, those people have it figured out. 
their community flourishes and everybody's able to participate in that. I think there is a vision for that in scripture. That's beautiful. I, I think Zechariah was speaking about Vancouver. Marty, thank you so much for being here with us. Privileged to be here. I appreciate yeah, will the you will you come back? Uh, I'd be delighted to. Yeah, I can literally like I would sit and just talk about this stuff for hours and hours. I find it fascinating. Remember, you can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Let's Fix This Okay. Scott is at SC Melson on Twitter and Instagram, I guess, and I am at Andy OKC. Uh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash let's fix this okay. And our website is let's fix this okay.org. You can sign up for our newsletter, read the blog, listen to this podcast if you haven't already. Uh, and on that note, please remember to like and rate our podcast on iTunes. It's produced and edited by me and Scott. And we are a member of the Mostly Harmless Media family. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. We strive to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with their government. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. And remember, the decisions are made by those who show up. 